Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Fred Anderson discusses his book, Crucible of War. Fred Anderson, author of Crucible of War, The Seven Years' War and the Fate of Empire in British North America. We're recording this program at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette building, which is about a two-minute walk from the point in Pittsburgh, where the forks of the Ohio. Uh, do you go out there, out there occasionally? And yeah. And when you go, what do you think about? Well, I think about how fortunate it is that it's a park now instead of a rail railroad, uh, you know, crossing. It was. Uh, it's it's extraordinary actually that the that the point's been restored to the point that it ha to the degree that it has and made accessible because it's one of the most important spots in America. Why? It, well, just because of the way that it plays such a large part in my book. I mean, it's, what, what can I say? Of course, it's important. Uh, it's a. Uh, it, it's a. If you, if you just think in geopolitical terms, it it was a point that controlled access to the principal uh, communication route in North America into the interior in the 18th century, and and once it came under the control of you know one of the contending empires, there was really no way that the other couldn't fight over it, uh, over control, because it, in fact it it was the spot that in some ways determined, was going to determine the future of the eastern half of North America. So when I do stroll down to the point and I look at the fountain and I think about that, I try to subtract all the stuff that's around me and imagine what it would be like to be standing on that spot, as Washington did in 1753, thinking about what it meant. And he was quite conscious of the, in, 1753 of, of the importance of this spot and the degree to which uh, control of it and its its deep anchorage, he said, would, would give people access to a whole future that people were only beginning then to imagine. For people who are not familiar with what happened at, at the point in uh, Pittsburgh at the Forks of the Ohio, can you go through the sequence a little bit from the time George Washington stood there and said, you know, there ought to be a fort here? Right. Uh, well, from 1753, which is that point in history, um, on, of course, the, the ball really starts rolling, so we need to back up a little bit. And so it's probably best to go back to sort of the late 1740s, which, at which point there, I keep saying point, but <laughs> the, point, the point is, at the, in, the, in the late 1740s, um, there is no uh, permanent white presence in the Ohio country. And that's because the Iroquois League, which, had the, which is the Six Nations of the Iroquois, which are uh, in New York at this point, living in Iroquois, are, have, have made it sort of the center point of their policy to keep any European group from establishing a permanent presence in the Ohio country. And that's fine with the French because what they want is for the English not to be there. And as long as the Iroquois can keep them out, that's great. What the, what the English wish to do, and this is, these are both English colonists in, in Pennsylvania and in, and in uh, 
Virginia. What they wish to do is to get access to the, to, to the interior because it's incredibly rich farmland. And the English population is very large and growing fast, doubles about every 25 or 26 years in the middle of the 18th century. So once the, the English colonists breach the, the Allegheny barrier and begin to settle in the interior, they're going to be just pouring into the heart of an area that New France has been trying to maintain as a zone of Indian alliances that keep them from, um, that, that, that will keep the English out. So with ha what's important about 1748 is it's the end of a colonial war, the one that precedes the Seven Years' War. We call it King George's War in Europe. It was the war of the uh, Austrian succession. And, and in the course of that conflict, there's this remarkable event happens, which you'd think is so far away that it couldn't possibly affect the forks of the Ohio, but it does. What happens is that a New England expedition uh, with the Royal Navy support captures uh, Louisbourg, which is a fortress that the French have built on Cape Breton Island, or what was then called Ile Royale. Where's that? It's in the Gulf of, of St. Lawrence. So it's up north of what's now Nova Scotia, just off short of the northeast. Louisbourg was a, a, a big naval base, and from that you could control everything that went into and came out of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So it's, it's the lifeline of New France. When the New Englanders capture that, it's such an incredible I event that it's, it's like a miracle. In fact, the New Englanders were convinced that it was evidence of divine intervention. Uh, and the, the, the upshot is that that sort of plugs the, the St. Lawrence River, in effect, to French trade, which means that the French then cannot um, get access to the trade goods they need to maintain the Indian alliances and the, and the arms that they need to maintain the Indian alliances in the, in the interior way out as far as Detroit and, and even beyond. Now once, you, once that happens, the Indians seek other trading partners. And so there is this remarkable Irish trader, a guy named George Cron. It looks like his name is spelled Krogan, but apparently he said Cron. And Cron comes out from Philadelphia and begins the trade with the Indians, picking up on the demand for arms and trade goods and so forth and begins to establish trading posts throughout the, the area. He, he has one on what's now the site of Cleveland, another one at uh, Logstown, which is about 20 miles downriver from, from here, uh, and, and ultimately others as far west as almost the Indiana border, the modern Indiana border, a place called Piccolilani. So what Cron what does, in effect, is panic the French by this intrusion into the interior of North America. Now he's just a, a he's an Irish uh, sort of adventurer in many ways, a really uh, a remarkable figure in all sorts of ways. He learns Indian language as well and he knows how to deal with native people and he's just, he, he's sort of a natural born wheeler dealer who's also a diplomat and also a trader and also a scoundrel and also a, you know, a lecher. And a, he's got all kinds of <laughs> interesting features in his personality and uh, there's a, good, there's a good biography of him. If, if Nicholas Wainwright is still alive, he probably isn't. But if he is, you should, you should interview him. He wrote like a book called character. George Cron, Wilderness Diplomat, which is just great. Wainwright used to teach in, uh, in, in Philadelphia. But anyway, see if he's, check him out. See if I he's will. still with us. Because uh, that, that's a fine book. Anyway, um, Cron and his, his associates, these traders, are basically funneling extremely high quality, inexpensive British manufacturers into this area, and that's drawing away all of the 
the Indians from the French alliance. So they're moving, actually, by the time he establishes his, his uh, trading post at Pickawillany, out in where Piqua, Ohio is today, uh, when he does that, um, he begins to draw Indians down from Detroit in large numbers. And so the largest, actually the largest um, Indian settlement that I know of in eastern North America becomes Pickawillany for about, for about a two-year period. And that's just terrifying to the French because that's really pulling the, it's like a magnet, pulling away the, the Indians from the French alliance system that they depend on. So that the appearance of, of English speculators, land speculators like George Washington and traders like George Cron in this area is, is terrifying for them in the uh, in this late 1740s. And they decide they need to do something to stop that. What they choose to do, they don't have to uh, do this. They, in fact, this, the simple solution, the one that would have led to no war at all, would have been for the French to open a highly subsidized trade to make their manufacturers as cheap as the, as the English manufacturers were and just sell them here. That would, have, that would have kept the English out. It would have satisfied the Indian demand. It would have cemented the alliances probably pretty well in the region. They didn't do that. Instead, they decided to build a series of forts down from Lake Erie to uh, what's now French Creek or then Riviera Boeuf um, to the Allegheny to the Forks of the Ohio. And the construction of those forts at exactly the same time that the, that the Virginia speculators in the Ohio country, uh, Ohio Company, um, which the governor of Virginia, Robert Dinwiddie, is a shareholder in, they're trying to establish a trading post at the Forks as well. So th these two empires collide out of this colossally complex mix, a volatile mix of uh, personal ambition and greed and imperial ambition and policy right here. And, and so when Washington is looking at this spot in 1753, to come back to your question, he's looking at it from the perspective of a man who believes that Virginia needs to establish its, a trading post here in order to establish the connections it needs ultimately to begin settling there. And he's, he knows he's on his way out to the, this, these French forts that had been built. There were three of the four at that point. They'd uh, Venango and a river of that on French Creek and then, um, and then finally on Lake Erie. He doesn't know where he's going to find the, the French commandant. But ultimately, he does find him at Fort Leboeuf, which is the second of the three forts. Um, he's looking for him in order to say, uh, you know, you can't, you can't build here. This is ours. And if you try, bad things will happen. And the, the French commander, who's this remarkable man, uh, Jacques Lagarde de Saint-Pierre, who's an immensely experienced guy, uh, Washington calls him, an, he's like an aged gentleman. Uh, with very much the manner of a soldier, I think he, what he says. But Lagarde de Saint-Pierre says, oh, Monsieur, you know, I, I cannot do that. <laughs> I, am a, my, I am the servant of the king, my master, you know, and I must stay. But I'll, I'll send your letter on, right? And so he blows him off. And they, Washington, he have dinner and all this. And Washington goes back and reports that, you know, the French ain't going. And that's what makes Dinwiddie, Governor Dinwiddie in Virginia, who's also a shareholder in the Ohio Company, so he has a fiscal, a, a fiduciary interest, you would say, in the, in the uh, success of this, of this colonization venture. That's what makes him decide to press for a fortified trading post using royal cannon uh, to defend the, f the point against the French. So that's what sets up this collision of empires. Uh, why did Governor Dinwiddie select George Washington for this mission? He was, how old was he? No, Washington was 21 at that point. So 
the reason Dinwiddie does it is because um, Washington's ambitious, because he's a surveyor and, and a, a judge of, of land and can draw maps, and because Washington has um, a powerful patron in uh, Lord Thomas Fairfax, who is the only nobleman resident in Ameri only English nobleman resident in America, and um, who is proprietor of an area basically that what's called a northern neck. Um, the land between the Potomac and the Rappahannock rivers belongs to him. And it extends as far as the head springs of those rivers, which means that it goes all the way up to um, the Blue Ridge and, and even beyond, actually, in the case of the Potomac. That gives him a personal ownership, proprietorship, of an area about the size of Massachusetts. Or, or Wales, if you want another analogy. So this guy is hugely important in Virginia politics. And because Washington has been employed by the Fairfax family to survey parts of its claim, and because Washington has gone fox hunting with Lord Thomas, and because he likes the kid, then he comes to, Washington comes to Dinwiddie with all the right recommendations, all the right credentials, all the right connections. And he desperately wants to see, and Washington himself really wants to see this. Uh, for several reasons, but one of which is that he's just convinced that the future of uh, the British colonies lies in the interior of North America, and he intends to be he's so much a, a creature of the empire himself, he intends to be in on the ground floor of that. So that's the, that's, it's, it's a combination again of his accessibility, of his connections, and of his ambition that makes him the, the guy for the, this mission. But there's one more thing as well, paradoxically. Uh, he's he's young. He's diplomatically inexperienced. And he doesn't speak French, so this would make him this would make him on the face of it seem to be not a very good candidate for a diplomatic mission. Well, that's because Dinwiddie, who calls Washington his courier, wants the French to believe that he's just a delivery boy, just a messenger boy. In fact, Washington is also a spy, because what he's doing is counting the number of bateaux that the and canoes that the the. French prepared. He's he's looking at the the character of their forts and how well they're armed and so forth. I mean, he's there to, to on a, in effect a reconnaissance mission. Um, so he's a kind of covert operative as well. And his very lack of experience makes him a guy with a good cover. So. Uh, the English were the first to set up a, a fort or a, an establishment of some sort at the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The um, the first. The first fort they built here is a, is a pretty primitive little operation called Fort Prince George, which is named after the, um, the Prince of Wales, uh, the man who becomes George III when he's crowned king. And um, it's small. It's built by about 40 men in about, in about two months, I guess. I'm not sure of the ex how exactly long, how long it takes. But it's built in the spring of 1754, and it's it's really indefensible. And when the French show up with um, 500 men and cannons and arms, the, uh, the Virginians who were there building the fort simply say, um, goodbye, you know, we'll you, see you later. You <laughs> have a scene in your book where they had to decide whether to fight or, or surrender, and so they decided to surrender, and then the French treated them to a nice dinner. Of course, that. yeah. Well, that's, you know, that, one of the things we've lost about the 18th century is, is the way that, that people behave toward each other was was in some in some measure just terribly barbarous and savage, and you would never hope ever want to live in a situation like that. On the other hand, once you'd worked out a, a surrender, as in this case, um, you were no longer enemies or potential enemies, 
And in that case, you simply got along like gentlemen. And so um, the, uh, later in the war, in 1757, up in New York, at the battle of, after the siege of Fort William Henry, which is a brutal siege, it goes on for oh, six days, I think. I can't remember the exact, it's the problem with having written the book as long ago as I did, but I, mean, I can't remember exactly how long it was. But it was a long siege, a lot of people died, terrible cannonades, and when it's over and they work out the surrender, um, Governor, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, the Marquis de Montcalm, the, Briti the, the French um, commander-in-chief, uh, invites, no, I take that back. It's actually Colonel Monroe, who is the British um, commander of the garrison, invites uh, Montcalm to a, a dinner. And so the officers of the garrison and the officers of the besieging force sit down together and they have you know, the best of the wine that's left in the cellar of, of Fort uh, William Henry and so forth. And that's, that happens on the day before the massacre of Fort William Henry, the one that we remember from the, the last of the Mohicans. So what's going on there is a, a sort of a, an encounter between European soldiers according to the kinds of rules of war that Europeans uh, believed uh, was, were civilized in the conduct of war. And it's all happening in the context of um, a war that involves a lot of native allies who not only can't figure out what's going on, but are terribly distressed by the idea that they're not going to get what they came for, which was plunder and prisoners. Well, anyway, something similar a long happened. digression. Something <laughs> similar happened at Jumonville Glen when Washington was at Fort Necessity taken prisoner and signed a surrender and then they let right. him go. Yes, exactly. But for, for people who are not familiar with Jumonville, the, the situation there, can you just give a thumbnail sketch of what happened? Uh, yeah, sure. This is in the, you mean the, the assassination, mm -hmm. so-called, of, of Benson Jumonville. Well, um, as I said, Washington comes out in 1753 on this diplomatic mission and he gets a polite rebuff from the, from the French and, and then comes back in 1754 at the head of only about 350 men from Virginia and some, some others, the independent company of British, of British regulars and a few people from North Carolina and so forth. But they, he comes back um, in order to establish um, that fort. Now, the, the fort's already been built. Fort Prince George has already been built. And at, at the time that Washington gets out to within striking distance of it, Fort Prince George has already surrendered. Right. But Washington believes that his mission is to, keep, is to get the French out, and that's what he tries to do. So um, to do that, he makes um, friends with, uh, he uh, allies himself with uh, a, an Indian uh, chief in the region named Tenacrison, whom the English called the Half King. Um, Tenacrison is an Iroquois, a Seneca chief, um, and his job is to represent the Iroquois Confederacy's interests in the Ohio country because the Indians that actually live at the forks of the Ohio are Delawares and Shawnees and Mingos. Mingos are a kind of uh, Western Seneca, all of, all of whom are really interested in escaping the control of the Iroquois League. They want, they're after independence, basically. So when Washington approaches Tenacrison, Tenacrison is very much in the it's in very much his interest to acquire an ally that he can use um, to s to support his own power because the the power of Indian chiefs is based largely on their ability to provide gifts to their followers. So he, Tenacrison needs 
a uh, who knows at this point that his power is going to be contingent on having a, an alliance that will provide him with the goods he needs. Um, he, he's out to make a kind of permanent alliance with Virginia in order to counteract the French, who at this point now control the Forks. If Tanakerson ever hopes to go back down there and to regain control of the people, or at least to regain leadership of the people who live in that area, he's going to need someone like Washington and a, a province like Virginia to supply him with the arms and the alliance that he needs to do it, the goods he needs to do it. So um, at this point, of course, the French at the Forks know that there's this Virginia uh, regiment, not as large as a regiment, but that's what it is organizationally, about 300 men up there who look pretty threatening. And they, they know they have arms, but they don't know what arms they have. Um, they don't know if they have draft animals. They don't know any of the stuff that they need to know. So they, the French at the Forks dispatch Ensign Jumonville, uh, Louis Coulon de Vie de Jumonville. Um, they dispatch him with, with 35 or so men to take a letter to Washington, just like the letter that Washington took the previous year to La Garde de Saint-Pierre. And the letter says, um, you're trespassing on French property, you must leave, which is exactly what Washington's letter from Dinwiddie had said to La Garde de Saint-Pierre. He's supposed to deliver the letter at the same time he's supposed to, Jumonville and his men are supposed to find out how many people there are in the English camp, how many animals they have, how many guns they, how many cannon they're, they're towing, if, are, they a, are they a threat? How well are they supplied? All this stuff. So it's exactly the same thing that was going on the previous year. Well, Tanakerson's the first to understand that the French are in the neighborhood. And, and so um, persuades Washington that they're a threat and that they, they, sh they should be dealt with as a threat. So between the two of them, Washington and Tanakerson, um, they attack the camp uh, in sort of a surprise attack around dawn on the 28th of May, 1754. And in the course of that, um, Jumonville and a dozen or so others of the French um, troops that are with him, they're Canadians actually that are with him, about a dozen of them and are, are, are wounded. Um, Perhaps one is killed outright. And then there's a lot of confusion, as there is always after firing, um, and a, a ceasefire. And then they're trying to work out who's on, what they're there for, what's going on. There's this big language barrier. Washington has a couple of, of uh, people with him who speak French, but they don't necessarily speak it well. And uh, so while they're trying to sort all this stuff out, as nearly as I can tell, I'm convinced, Tanakerson walks up to uh, Jumonville, who's one of the wounded, and says, um, you're not yet dead, my father. And then he hits him in the head with a tomahawk. And, and uh, it says in one source, reached in, washed his hands in the Frenchman's brains, which is a pretty dramatic way to do this, um, to make a point, which is essentially a diplomatic point, which is simply that if um, you, you mess with me, that is to say the half-king, um, and my friends, the English, this is what you get. And he's trying, in other words, to, to make an unbreakable alliance between himself and Washington. So it's a, it's a horrifying moment. And Washington has no idea, would have had no idea that this was coming. Um, once it happens, the, the, uh, 
the, the other Indians, or about eight or ten other Indians, who, warriors who were with Tanakrisen, uh, they set about uh, killing and scalping the wounded so that in the end, uh, Washington is only able to save or to, to preserve the life of one of the wounded French and then to gather the rest of the unwounded ones and, you know, sort of hustle them off. Um, and then he tries to figure out exactly what to do next. And um, what he does is work out a story within which he doesn't quite um, tell everything that happened. He doesn't, for example, mention until later that, that it was the Indians that did the killing. He doesn't quite mention how many you know, people were killed in the first fire and whether or not there was anything that happened afterwards. Did he ever write down what his reaction was to the whole situation? Yeah, he did. He went back to the camp and he wrote a diary entry, which was quite long and elaborate which was, as far as I can tell, the dry run for a series of letters he then wrote to other people reporting on the event, which, as I said, was very much a sort of passive voice kind of account of what went on there. When the, the French come back in July, Washington, of course, is, is encamped at the Great Meadows, which is um, where Fort Necessity is built. Um, it's a spot that Washington believes is where he's going to concentrate his, his forces before returning to the Ohio the Forks of the Ohio and kicking the French out, which is his intent. Well, when they're camped there, the, 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 uh, the French at the Forks uh, decide that they need to take, you know, really vigorous measures to remove these people, gather a substantial expedition, which is under the leadership of uh, Jumonville's older brother, um, and they, they come back to, to take it, to, to, to kick the English out, take away their, um, you know, get them out of the Ohio country, you know, take back the fort. When they do that, this is the Battle of Fort Necessity on July 3rd, 1754. Um, they kill about a third of Washington's men. They've, they've got him dead to rights. I mean, they could have taken them all prisoner if they'd wanted to. Um, they don't. Instead, they, they work out a capitulation by which Washington, when he signs it, takes responsibility for what's called the assassination of Jumonville. Uh, Washington, of course, not reading French, doesn't know what he's agreeing to, but nonetheless, he, he signs it, and his remaining 200 men then can march back to Virginia on the promise that they won't come back. Now, when he does that, and this is kind of a long way around to the answer of your question, when he does that surrender, um, everything's in chaos. The camp is a shambles. Uh, there are lots of wounded men to take care of. There's way more baggage. The, the animals are mostly dead. There's, they can't they can't haul off the, all the stuff they've got, the baggage. And um, so a lot of stuff gets, gets left in the camp. One of the things that's left in the camp is Washington's journal, in which he's described everything that's material to, the, to that episode and to his, his mission to the Ohio and so forth. The French find that, they take it back to France. Ultimately, it finds its way back to France, where it's translated into French and then published to demonstrate, along with the capitulation, to demonstrate that Washington is a cold-blooded murderer who has killed a diplomatic emissary, and therefore that the French have uh, casus belli, that is, the, the right to start a war, should they choose to do so, to declare a war. As it happens, they, they don't declare war at that point, but this is an intensely uh, embarrassing way for Washington to become an internationally known figure. Uh, which he was very famous at a very At young that age. point, he becomes very famous, that's right. When did it actually become a war? Well, in Europe, not until 1756, because the French, for a variety of reasons, uh, bide their time until they think they can 
they can cre they can conduct the war in a way that will benefit them. Um, there are many things that are going on in France at this point, but one of them is that the French are building a navy that they want to be as good as the as the English, and um, that's a long, expensive, drawn-out process. Their uh, intention is to have a, a navy that's at least uh, about two-thirds the size of Britain's before they go to war, and they do intend to go to war eventually. Um, they hope to work out a, an alliance with Spain before they do that, because the Spanish Navy and the French Navy together would be larger than Britain's and therefore would put the British at a disadvantage. And what the France, French actually hope to do, interestingly enough, is to conduct a, a war that would attack the British imperial possessions, not a war in Europe, but a, a war against the British Empire. Um, well, for reasons that are probably too complicated to go into, the, the Spanish alliance doesn't work out and the French decide that they're in a strong enough position to do this kind of limited war, this limited attack, largely on the basis of naval power, uh, by uh, the spring of 1756. And so then they attack um, uh, Menorca, which is the English naval base in the Mediterranean. Um, and that's what triggers the war in Europe, what becomes the, the European War, the Seven Years' War. In the meantime, back in, back in, uh, uh, Western Virginia, or Western Virginia and Western Pennsylvania, um, there's already a war going on as a consequence of the stuff that, that begins in 1754, because the, the British send over um, two regiments under Braddock, Edward Braddock, to try to um, remove what they call the French encroachments from English frontiers, at the same time that the French have sent over a whole raft of, of uh, uh, regular soldiers from France who are supposed to, to reinforce you know, the French forts that defend the frontiers. So it's all this complicated stuff. That was all going on while there was this no is, war? There was, that's right. That was going on before there was a, a war in place, uh, formally declared. And blood had been shed in the, in the Americas um, and on quite a large scale already at that point, um, both at the Fort, Battle of Fort Necessity and at, at Braddock's defeat, when Braddock is marching out in 1755 to try to to uh, uh, dislodge the, the French from the forks of the Ohio. So yeah, there's, there's very much a, a frontier war going on here, but you see, countries could be fighting each other in the Americas, but still be at peace in Europe, which had been the case uh, really since the 15th century, since the late 15th century. Um, and there's, a, there's sort of an imaginary line that ran down the middle of the Atlantic Ocean called the Line of Amity, which allowed you to go to, to, to conduct a war west of the line and, and everything east of it would still remain at peace. So um, this line of amity, this is what it means to go beyond the line, to cross the line uh, when you, oh. uh, for what it's worth, you know. Um, it, when you cross the line, you cross into a war zone. And Did George Washington ever get in trouble for firing on uh, Jumonville? Because it, and I can't put my fingers on it right now, but in your book you have his orders which say that his mission is to be purely defensive. Right. Was well, that just a ruse that he'd be purely defensive or no, did he, he thought he was yelled at for he, he starting <laughs> a war? <laughs> he thought he was being <laughs> defensive. Um, he did actually um, sort of lose face over this. I mean, he, he was, um, it wasn't a distinguished way to start your, your military career, you know, with a, um, with a, a big time loss where a third of your command gets killed. Um, and it becomes even more humiliating 
for him once this diary that the French find and translate is published in Europe. Um, because it, then, you know, he then at last Washington realizes that what he did was admit to the assassination of Jumonville. And so he feels completely betrayed by all this. That doesn't happen, though, until after the English, see, because of the, the slow communications of the day, um, it, all of that is, is known only after Braddock has, has crossed the Atlantic with his two regiments. And Washington has joined the, that expedition as, a, as an aide-de-camp to Braddock. Because um, one of the things Washington wants to do is become an officer in the British Army, and this is a way to do it. Um, it's not until after that's happened that all that nasty, messy stuff becomes apparent. So uh, Washington is ultimately embarrassed, but he's, he's not... He's never fired for what happens. I mean, he's never his job's never really in in, in any sense under threat. Um, largely because there's um, once Braddock's defeated, and you know so many of his men are lost out in, in what's now Braddock. Um, once that happens, um, Virginia needs to have its its frontiers defended. The only way they can do that is by by uh, raising a new Virginia regiment. And the only way that they can, the only person they have to command it is George Washington. So he's really the, the man of the hour, in a way, despite all this, the, the way he screwed up before. Um, I want to read what you say about Braddock for a minute here in, in your chapter, Disaster on the Monongahela. And uh, you talk about in preparation for Braddock's attack on, on Fort Duquesne, an Indian, Shingas, uh, came across all the plans for Fort Duquesne and how many soldiers were, were there, and he presented it to Braddock, a detailed plan of Fort Duquesne. When the Delaware chief stood before him and asked the only question that mattered to the Ohio Indians, what he intended to do with the land if he could drive the French and their Indians away, Braddock answered that the English should inhabit and inherit the land, and he said no savage should inherit the land. Right. So he's like, tell, telling his potential Indian ally, well, you're not going to get anything out of being my ally. That's right. You, you <laughs> and then, it doesn't seem like a very diplomatic thing to do, does it? Oh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> and then you have this, uh, this Oneida half-king, Scaruaday. Yeah, you're doing very well. Um, I don't know how these things are pronounced, by the way, so that's... Uh. that's <laughs> I think you did it exactly right. Um, after Braddock was killed, he, he told the governor that, uh, of the, and the council of Pennsylvania that Braddock was a bad man when he was alive. He looked upon us, the Indians, as dogs and would never hear anything what was said to him. We often endeavored to advise him of the danger he was in with his soldiers, but he never appeared pleased with us. So it sounds like he got what was coming. Well, in a sense, he did get exactly what was coming to him. Um, in another sense, you know, he simply could not understand um, how powerful Indians were. To him, they were exotics and uncivilized. And he said, you know, it's, it's impossible that they should make an impression on His Majesty's troops. So Braddock had all the, the positive and the negative features in some ways of, of 18th century professional officers. I mean, he was, he was a, a, on one level a deeply civilized man who believed that, that war should be left to professionals who can fight it in a civilized way and not involve civilian populations in the bloodshed. Um, at the same time, he was completely unable to understand Indian ways of war. And, and dismissed those as savagery, and Indians as therefore savages. So his, his whole uh, orientation is one in which he, he's, he's almost 
it's almost inevitable that he's going to, to dismiss the Indians as, as potential allies, not understand them. And as a result, he dooms himself. Um, so he has, as I said, both the, the virtues and the flaws of 18th century European professional officers, but he's also sort of tragically doomed at the moment that he says, you know, no savage will inherit the land. Um, he's, he's in effect dooming his, his expedition um, because he's no match None of his men are a match for the Indians. In, in well, what was the warfare? Indian approach to war, I mean, it, other than just the tactics of hiding behind trees? I mean, how did they approach the idea of a battle mentally? What, what did they? How did they want to proceed? What did they want to get out of it? Sure. Well, there, it, it's important to realize that, and it's a, a, something I should have stressed more strongly in the book, that Indian groups had war aims just like um, European groups do, right? And and Indian warriors had individual motivations just like individual. European soldiers had motivations, right? So the the war aims of the Indians at the Ohio um, are essentially to make themselves independent. What they want to do is is to play exactly the same kind of, of diplomatic and, and uh, political role between the English and the French empires that the Iroquois do, you know, which is a, a role of neutrality in which the the Iroquois are able to balance these powers off against one another and use that system of playing one side off against the other to their advantage. That's exactly what the Delawares and the Shawnees and the Mingos at the Forks of the Ohio want to do on their own, not under Iroquois control. So um, they're, they're after basically independence and their policy is to establish their independence. In order to be independent, however, they have to have a functional alliance and because the French are there, having established Fort Duquesne and the trading post which is really what's most important about Fort Duquesne, um, that they are, the French are the only real possible alliance for the Delawares, Shawnees, and the Mingos. Um, now, that being said, um, that doesn't necessarily mean they want the French there forever. They would like to see, they, they, would, they would like to see, you know, less of a French presence. The best way to, to make that happen is to cooperate with the French in driving the English out so that the French, you know, will ultimately withdraw. Furthermore, it's complicated by the fact that there are all these Indians from the, from the Great Lakes region, Ojibwas and Ottawas, um, Nipissings and others, that have, that have come down from the lakes to the, to the forks in order to, um, to fight alongside the French. Once those Indians are there, and they're rough customers, uh, then the, the Delawares, the Shawnees, and the Mingos, the people who actually live at the Forks, have much less say in what goes on. So, so the, the Indians at the Forks have a policy goal of independence. That means cooperating with the French. But when the battles actually occur, when warriors decide to go to, to war, they're driven by a, a different set of imperatives just as modern soldiers are driven by uh, a great many other imperatives than, you know, wanting to see American foreign policy executed. Um, they're driven by desires for, um, for example, economic security, by patriotism, by a whole complex of, of personal motives, typically. In the same way, Indian warriors were driven by a complex set of personal motives, um, part of which was to gain plunder, part of which was to fulfill their culturally defined role as men, which was to be warriors, and, and part of which was to take prisoners um, who could then be adopted into the, their own people's 
villages to replace the people who had died, the, uh, the so-called mourning war tradition. They had all these motives, these complex motives, um, which, were, which would drive them in battle. Once they began to attack, they, they fought. The Indian culture typically was to fight as, as individuals um, without a lot of coordination, although they did, in fact, in the case of Braddock, uh, adopt an envelopment kind of, of um, uh, strategy where they, or tactic where they, they, the Indians sort of dispersed in the woods on both sides of this column that was trapped in the road. So they, they were coordinated at that point, but basically what happened in the battle itself was largely individual and determined by individual warriors' motivations. So when the battle's over and you have the stripping of corpses and the plundering and the taking of scalps and uh, taking of prisoners and all that sort of stuff, the, those actions which the British think of as um, savage are actually the playing out of the role of warrior as understood by the people who just won this great victory. Um, they, they don't then follow follow the, the retreating English back, try to kill them off, that's a, you know, I mean, to do so would, wouldn't serve a, any particular point. They've driven out the enemy, they've got the plunder, they've got the scalps, they've got captives that they, that they want. So all in all, um, the answer to your question is it's complicated. There's so much to talk about, <laughs> about this war and about this book, and we're, we've only got an hour, but I want to ask you a little bit about yourself. <laughs> How are we doing? You are a teacher? Yes, I am. Where do you teach? I teach at the University of Colorado at Boulder. What do you teach? I teach early American history. Um, principally, I'm, I'm interested in the 18th century, the revolutionary era, and the early national period. So those are the, the, the upper-level courses I teach. But I, I teach survey courses that cover you know, pretty much the gamut of American history. In the whole scope of world history, what, what attracts you about uh, early American history? It's where I did my PhD thesis, and uh, therefore, Obviously, of transcendent You're importance. Expert, I mean, what, what could be more important? What was your thesis? Uh, it was actually um, it was on the Seven Years' War uh, in Massachusetts. It was a book called a, it became a book called The People's Army: Massachusetts Soldiers and Society in the Seven Years' War, and it was basically about the social experience of war um, among young New England men, what the war, how they experienced it, what the war meant to them, and what its possible connections to the Revolution might have been. Um, I had set out to write a book about the revolution, but I got sort of stuck in this preliminary period when I was trying to explain the context. And it turned out to be so fascinating that I, I then wrote a second book, which became Crucible of War, trying to tell a larger story, still trying to get to the revolution. And as you know, I only got to 1767 with that, or 66. Um, and so f finally the next book that I, the one I've just finished with a, uh, a good friend of mine and uh, my collaborator, Andrew Caton, a book called The Dominion of War, tries to cover all of American history from 1500 to 2000 and to look at the place of war and empire in that larger scheme. What's happened as a result is that uh, Drew, Caton, and I have sort of resituated the American Revolution as a two-phase event, one of, which begins with this war for empire and its success, which creates as a kind of a completely unanticipatable consequence the Revolutionary War that shatters the British Empire and establishes the United States. Um, by resituating the, the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, and the, and the Revolution together in that way in the narrative, it casts, we found, it casts all of American history in a very different light. And so this 
the sort of the end point of this long process of trying to figure out what the heck the Seven Years' War means um, has, has, has led us to a kind of reformulation of the, of the whole American historical narrative. Um, and I, I, the book I, I'm just now finishing, which is a companion volume or a little illustrated uh, guide um, to the events of the Seven Years' War, um, that will accompany a, um, a TV series that'll air on PBS in um, probably in January of 2006 um, called The War That Made America. So, and that I think will be my last word on the, on the Seven Years' War. I've, I've said everything I possibly can about it and uh, I find something else to do. Books could be written to answer this question, but can you give a brief uh, explanation about how the French and Indian War led to the Revolutionary War? And, and first of all, but sure. were, were the colonists taxed at all before the French and Indian War? Oh, they paid a lot of taxes, but they, they were taxed, um, they taxed themselves for the, cost, for the administrative costs of government. And they were taxed indirectly by the British through trade, the customs on, on transatlantic trade. Um, but that no, those never raised any revenues. Those customs taxes never raised revenues. They never even covered the cost of the, um, of the collection. And so they were regarded as, as simply the way that the, the British Empire structured uh, trade within the empire, made certain commodities, uh, in effect, captive of, of, of uh, the transatlantic trade to Britain and so forth. Um, so it's a mercantilist kind of taxation that really wasn't a, a direct burden on the colonists. So yeah, the colonists were used to paying taxes. They just thought that they had the right to consent to them. The British never granted that that was a, a right. So that was the ultimate problem. However, the reason it became a problem is the Seven Years' War, which is enormously expensive, especially given the way William Pitt, who is in effect the Prime Minister of England, uh, wins it. Pitt um, basically makes allies of the English colonists in North America instead of trying to, to direct them as the earlier commanders had, you know, like Earl of Loudoun and Braddock, instead of trying to to just essentially make the colonists do their will because they're the British and the colonists are the colonists. Um, what Pitt does is invite the colonists to participate, offers to reimburse them for a proportion of their expenses in, or expenses in proportion to their participation in the war, and, and opens up the possibility for these Americans to imagine that they are really what they want to be, which is partners in an empire, kind of co-conquerors of the French. Well, when the war ends, the British have doubled their national debt, and they're in possession of half a continent that they have to administer. So they have these huge problems of control and huge problems of finance that grow out of the Seven Years' War. And it's in response to trying to solve those problems, to make some sense out of this new empire, and to make it functional, and to get the colonists who've never been good at cooperating with each other or with the crown, to get the colonists to sort of march to the same drummer um, those are the, the, the imperatives that grow out of the war that make the British want to tax the American colonists. So the, the connection between, to answer your question, the connection between the Seven Years' War and the Revolution is an indirect one, but a powerful one, because it, the war creates expectations on the part of, of the colonists that they're partners. It creates uh, problems for the British to solve that they believe they can only solve by um, the exertion of sovereign power. And it creates um, a, a, a set of, of presumptions on the part of the British that suggest that ultimately 
if the colonists don't cooperate, they can be they can be forced to cooperate because Britain is the closest thing at the end of the war that the 18th century had to a superpower, and there was no way that a bunch of raggedy colonists could possibly stand up to the most powerful army and the most or the most powerful navy and the most efficient army in the world, which had after all just gotten done conquering two great European empires. How could an American insurrection amount to a hill of beans? Impossible. That, yeah. So the the so my view is that you can't actually understand what goes on, at least in the in the period prior to 1776. You really can't understand that as as a coming revolution so much as a quarrel among people who are equally committed on both sides of the Atlantic to the empire, uh, but just can't agree on what that empire means. There's, there's so much I want to ask about, and we're going to run out of time. But I, I want to. So forgive me if I jump around in the last <laughs> few fine. minutes. But you you talk about going back to the forts that were established by the French and also by the English, Fort Leboeuf and Presque Isle and and uh, Fort uh, Meshaw. Venango or Meshaw. Venango, yes. and uh, and Fort Ligonier uh, a little bit later. Uh, you say, well, Ligonier is a British fort, right? Yeah, but, but established the, but by both. The, uh, you say, in principle, they comprised a chain of forts linked by several frequent patrols of soldiers scouting for enemies. In reality, they were so undermanned that patrols seldom ventured far from their walls. They were 18 to 20 miles apart, making them better targets oh. for French and Indian war parties than barriers against raiders. Can you Can describe? I, a, a I, little okay, I'm going to have to. I'm, I'm sorry, but you, you're conflating two different sets of, of forts. Well, my, my question <laughs> essentially is, what would life have been like at one of those forts? And did did you spend days and weeks just sitting completely isolated from anybody else? And how? What kind of messages right. would you have heard? What function did they serve other than sure. just to kind of sit there? Um, well, first let me let me just sort out what different kinds of fort issue. Um, the the French forts. Uh, Michel Leboeuf, Duquesne. Those are, are forts where trade with the Indians is the principal activity. I mean, there are a lot of active in and out. Yeah, there's constantly there. coming and going. And it's like um, having a great big Walmart there. You know, I mean, uh, you know, for want of a better analogy, <laughs> I mean, you know what happens when Walmart moves in, right? I mean, it just sucks in all the, the trade from the surrounding areas. That's what the that's that was the purpose of the forts, and that, and so the the French forts were really quite modest in size, and they were intended to be kind of welcoming to the Indians. They didn't, in any sense, uh, try to 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 exert direct power over the surroundings so much as as to as to create a desirable place for interaction. And the goal was mainly to make money for France. No, the goal was to well it, that would have been fine if they could have done it. In fact, they lost money on it. But what they were what they were doing was m making alliances. They were making friends for France among the Indian people on whom the French, you know, control of the interior had to rely. So that's that. Now the the forts you were describing when you read that passage were the ones that Virginia established on the frontier in the Shenandoah Valley after the war actually begins, and those are are as often as not individual houses, um, stone houses for the most part, that have fortifications or stockades set up around them, which um, are manned by tiny numbers of people. And they're, in effect, refuges for the few farmers that remain in the neighborhood who haven't fled. And so whenever the Indians attack or you know, appear in the neighborhoods, they're places that you can flee for refuge. Now they're they're manned by handsful, tiny handsful of militia or or Virginia regiment uh, troops, mostly militia groups, and um, and life in those, especially when they're under attack, is 
unbelievably nasty. Um, you know, because the, the people will drag in their, they bring their families, they they bring in as many livestock as they can to keep them from being killed and so forth, and and then they huddle within the stockade in these these tiny cramped um, houses, which are really no more than just you know three or six or rooms perhaps, with a with a well, you know, that they where they can get water. They they huddle there until it's safe to go out again. So it's it, they're they're terrible places. They're more targets than they are um, really defensive areas, and and it's it's and because they're so far apart, because they're about twenty miles apart, it's impossible to to do the the rational thing, which is to secure the areas in between by by patrolling back and forth. If they were a couple of miles apart, you could do that, but there's no way that you can take a three hundred fifty mile long frontier, which is how long the Shenandoah is, and turn that into a, in turn that into a real uh, secure region. By by you know really constructing a, a true chain of force, does that get the? I think it does. Okay. Yeah. Um, when when uh, Braddock was defeated, the um, you say in your book that the frontier was essentially rolled back to Carlisle. Essentially, that's right. Yeah. Were there many English settlers west of that area? Oh sure. Yeah. Nobody knows exactly how many thousands, thousands. Um, in a variety of, of sanctioned and unsanctioned settlements. I mean, ones, some of them were, were places like Gnaden Hooten that were, um, you know, formally established, uh, had title to the land, were, you know, you know real communities. Um, Where was most that? Did you refer to a, a, a massacre of, of a Moravian pacifist community in Gnaden Hooten? It's, um, it's on the, uh, I can't remember which side of the drainage it's on. It's it's north of Philadelphia, um, maybe 60 miles or so north of, of Philadelphia or so, in either the either the uh, east Susquehanna drainage or in the or in the Delaware River okay. drainage toward the Lehigh um, Valley. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's uh, yeah. Okay. Um, you also. Uh, uh, toward the end of your book, after the treaty, <laughs> the problem with this is there's somebody who's watching this now, because my gra who has an in intensely comprehensive <laughs> grasp of Pennsylvania geography, and I apologize to you, <laughs> sir or madam, for having gotten the location of Gnaden Hooten wrong. And in fairness, <laughs> please to forgive you, me for it. <laughs> you're from Colorado, and you wrote this book in two. Or this book was published in 2000, and we are recording this in 2005. So some time has elapsed. Some has, yes. <laughs> but your your book. <laughs> Thank you. Your book ends. Uh, well, the treaty that ends the French and Indian War is about three quarters of the way through the book, and at the toward the end of the book, you talk about two things that. Uh, one is um, a war between Pennsylvania and Connecticut, mm -hmm. and the other is Pontiac's War. First of all, can you talk about briefly about the war between Pennsylvania well, it's and a, Connecticut? Well, the so-called Pennamite War, and it's not a real full-blown war between, I mean, Connecticut doesn't march troops against Pennsylvania and vice versa. But what, what's happened is there's an area called the Wyoming Valley that figures prominently in this. It's a stretch of, of, um, of Susquehanna, east, each branch, east branch of Susquehanna, um, between what's then Shemokin and um, uh, where the river curves back north and, and west. Um, it's the, what's there? Wilkes-Barre is okay. there. Okay. Um, that is a very valuable land, um, very rich farmland. And because it's right in line with the western border of Connecticut, and Connecticut has a sea-to-sea -sea charter, uh, people in Connecticut believe that, that they have the right to settle that land. 
and, and to grant it on the basis of this old charter. So in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War, there are a lot of Connecticut Yankees who are, who are trying to settle in that land. Now, it's also, obviously, within Pen the Penn family's patent in Pennsylvania. So you've got these this conflicting jurisdictions over who, who should grant the land. Now, how do you establish real uh, ownership of the land? Well, you know, possession, they say, is nine points of the law, right? So if you can actually move in and claim the land by physically occupying it, that's the best way to do it. So the, the Yankees are trying to move in in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. The Pennsylvanians are waking up to the fact that their land is being, in the Wyoming Valley, Penn land, as they see it, is being occupied by these these. Yankees who are not paying quit rents, who are not buying, who are not taking the title properly as they should from the pens and so forth. At the same time that this land it had, had been promised by the government of Pennsylvania to Indians as a kind of reserve during the Seven Years' War, and it's occupied by a whole lot of eastern, or eastern Delawares who are living in this, in this area. So when the Yankees move in, um, there's a, a lot of dispute between them and the Indians over whether or not they have any right to be there. The Yankees intended to, to, to take possession of the place by force, um, and all that happens as sort of backdrop to, um, and then there's bloodshed, I should say. Um, but all that happens as a kind of a backdrop, backdraft of the of Pontiac's War, which breaks out in, in 1763 in Detroit. Uh, which is a, a huge Indian uprising against uh, British uh, claims of control. So that so the this dispute over the Wyoming Valley or the East Branch of the Susquehanna is is part of a, a friction between colonies based on the desire to occupy valuable land and to take it away from Indians. Pontiac's War represents a response to these post-war conditions within which Indians um, are trying to, to, to teach the English a lesson about how allies properly behave. Because the Indians, of course, have, have abandoned the French alliance. That's the reason the French lose the Seven Years' War more than anything else. Um, once that's happened and they've, they've shifted their, their allegiance to the, or their alliance to the British, um, they, they expect to be treated with respect, they expect to be treated with restraint, and what the British try to do in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War is reform the Indians, just as they try to reform their colonies. They do it by suspending the trade in liquor, by suspending the giving of diplomatic gifts, by restricting the amount of gunpowder that the Indians can have access to, and that's what makes the Indians explode in this insurrection, to teach them a lesson. All that, then, is this sort of terrible, sort of violent aftermath of the Seven Years' War, and the reason this book goes on so long beyond the end of the war is because I was trying to show that even though the war is over, its effects linger and, and, and structure the way that people react to the empire, the British Empire and its initiatives after the war. That dispute between the Connecticut Yankees and the Pennsylvania settlers, the Pennamites as they're called, goes on through the 1760s into the 1770s once the Indians are gone from the Ohio country, so, or once the Indians are gone from the Wyoming Valley. So there's, there's a, a, a terrible set of, of, of animosities that go out of that. I wish we could keep talking, but we're out of time. <laughs> oh, we have barely on. scratched the surface of the French and Indian War as told in this book, Crucible of War. Fred Anderson, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books. 
a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.